0: So, yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 148 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023, right before Thanksgiving. I'm Allison Gill.
2: Hey, Allison, happy Thanksgiving. I'm Pete Struck. We have so much to cover today. It's going to be packed. <laughs> the Fulton County District Attorney racketeering case, we have a new protective order a motion to revoke bond for Harrison Floyd, and a proposed trial date. And in the New York Attorney General's civil lawsuit, we have a suspension of the dual gag orders and an outright denial of Trump's motion for a mistrial.
0: Yep, yep. And we have updates on multiple fronts, including the E. Jean Carroll case, which is set for January 15th, the Ruby Freeman and Sheamus defamation suit against Rudy set for this December 11th, An update on the George Santos case, which is set for September 9th of next year, along with updates on the Hunter Biden charges, the Manhattan DA's criminal hush money case against Donald Trump, the Colorado case to keep Trump off the ballot pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We now have Nevada investigating fraudulent electors and a new filing in our good pal Jeffrey Clark's disbarment proceeding. But first, we need to thank our new patrons. Uh, If you've been on the fence about signing up, now's a good time because we're going to start planning annual MSW Media meetups. And I think we're trying to aim for the springtime. And if you're a patron, you get to attend for free. In fact, it's only patrons who will be able to attend and you won't have to pay anything. Uh, Just head to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod AISLE45POD and uh, we'll read whatever name you sign up with, including these names. Uh, these are the new patrons for this week. Only joined to hear P.S. Swear. Love you both. Thanks for all you do. Jerfet, like Smurfet, but not. Matthew D. Townsend, Heather Melling, Anita Margarum, Brian Hills, Cindy, Craig Liddell, and Cynthia Conlin. Ah, So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. You make this show possible with your uh, contributions. We couldn't do it without you. All right, Pete, Should we, uh, where should we start? Down in Georgia?
2: Yeah, let's do it. We should come up with a big spinner thing where we have every location where Trump is facing legal jeopardy and we just spin it to shake it up each week. But <laughs> it's as good a place as any. So the week started with someone releasing video of the proffer sessions of the four defendants that have pled guilty. So namely, Sidney Powell, Scott Hall, Ken Chesbro, and Jenna Ellis. So before we get to who leaked or released the tapes and all the backlash that ensued, let's go over what was in them. And this is from a Washington Post story about the proffer tapes from Amy Gardner and Holly Bailey. It notes, starting with Jenna Ellis, that she told Georgia prosecutors that a top presidential aide said to her in December 2020 that the, quote unquote, the boss did not plan to leave the White House, quote, under any circumstances And he said to me, you know, in kind of an excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave, unquote. Powell also said Giuliani spoke of a plan to gain access to voting equipment at a December 18th, 2020 meeting with Trump and others in the Oval Office. Powell said that if Trump had appointed her special counsel to investigate election irregularities, as she had urged him to do in that December 18th Oval Office meeting, she would have sought to seize election equipment. And would have considered using the military to do so. Now, Chesbro disclosed in his recorded statement that at a previously unreported White House meeting, he briefed Trump on election challenges in Arizona and summarized a memo in which he offered advice on assembling alternate slates of electors in key battleground states to cast ballots for Trump despite Biden's victories in those states. Chesbrough also disclosed for the first time that he played a role transporting documents signed by Wisconsin Trump electors to Capitol Hill as part of a Trump campaign plan to present Vice President Mike Pence with competing slates of electors. Hall appeared to implicate another defendant, lawyer Robert Cheely, describing him as part of the quote-unquote brain trust planning the Coffee <laughs> County scheme. Hall also oh, a brain trust or not <laughs> well, yeah you, you don't have to go find, it's a very low bar to to get into that trust uh, yeah. Hall also <laughs> revealed a previously undisclosed role in alleged harassment of Ruby Freeman, a Fulton County election worker who was publicly described having to go into hiding after Giuliani and others falsely accused her of counting phony ballots. Hall said Cheely approached him to help locate Freeman. And he surmised that he was tapped because of his skills tracking people down as a bail bondsman.
0: Now, that's interesting because, you know, we, we've been talking about getting um, testimony from somebody in each of the hubs of the conspiracy. But if Hall was revealing that he had an undisclosed role in the harassment of Ruby Freeman, then we that was the last piece that they were missing. That was the last hub of the hub and spoke conspiracy they were missing was the Ruby Freeman thing. So it'll be interesting to see if she now, you know, doggedly pursues any cooperation from folks like Chile or Floyd, Harrison Floyd, who was involved in that conspiracy, or Trevion Cootie, who was also a part of that conspiracy. Now, also, after all of that happened, right, McAfee had a hearing uh, about a protective order. A protective order would have prohibited those proffer tapes from being released to the press. And in that hearing, Misty Hampton's lawyer named Jonathan Miller admitted, he said, I'll sleep better tonight, you know, for my own conscience or whatever, uh, that he is the one who released them to one media outlet. Don't know if it was ABC or The Post. ABC first reported the Powell uh, and Chesbro, I believe, uh, or the maybe Powell and Ellis, and then the Washington Post came out and said that they also had Chesbro and um, Halls. So I'm not sure which outlet, but he did admit to that. Um, and it, basically, the reason this hearing was held was because DA Fonnie Willis was like, hey, bro, I filed for a protective order back in September, and you still haven't ruled on it. And now we ha and here we are. So can you please on an emergency basis, she said. Um, put a protective, like a te- like a temporary protective order on everything, and then we'll have a hearing to to hash it out. Well, he just had a hearing, and um, during that hearing, he said he would be granting the motion for a protective order, uh, and he would write that up. And then he also reminded us why. And I think this got lost in the reporting. You know, there's just he granted the protective order or whatever. Um, but what's important to understand, and, and and Pete, you know, you've explained this to me on several occasions is that just not all discovery makes it into trial, right? There can be, you, you give all the discovery over, and then people file what's called motions in limine to say, you can't uh, enter this into evidence because this and this, it's prejudicial, or you can't enter this into evidence because it's irrelevant, or you can't enter this into evidence for, for whatever number of reasons, and you, you put that in your motions in limine. And then some of that isn't allowed into evidence because it will, some in some cases, prejudice the jury. And so, you know, the judge, Judge McAfee was like, look, we can't just have discovery going out to the public. Some of this might be barred uh, or inadmissible as evidence at trial. And that could be unfair to these defendants. It's a, It's part of the defendant's rights to a fair trial, to not prejudice the jury with certain things. So he reminded us all of that. So I don't know. I mean, that I couldn't really think of any other reasons, but that was his main reason that he gave to, to put this protective order in place over Discovery.
2: Right. So I think, I mean, look, that the, the, the reason for the protective order makes a lot of sense to me. There's some question in my mind that, you know, although Miller admitted to releasing the tapes, there was some ambiguity about whether or not he was the only party that had done so. Now, of course, he's the only one Party that said he did so, but there was you know enough wiggle room in some of the statements that were made. I'm not convinced that other people did not release information as well, but yeah at this point it's completely you don't want any sort of prejudgment going on. you don't want this being tried in the court of public opinion in this case in a negative way uh, so i I think it makes a lot of sense, and like you said it's not forever so um, I you know we'll, we'll get there, but I think it was the it was the right call in this case.
0: Yeah, that that was one of the big things, right? Because the media was like, we should be able to have access to this. And the judge is like, you will, just not right now. Uh, it, this isn't forever. So we're not stepping on anybody's First Amendment rights. Um, now, I, I had another question for you, too, because Chesbro's lawyer went on CNN or MSNBC, went somewhere, went on some show, and admitted the reason that Chesbro pled guilty was because he Admitted that he didn't, or he, you know, he was didn't put contingency language in the fraudulent certificates, uh, meaning like what Pennsylvania did, where they said, "Hey, we're we're not the duly elected electors here. We are only going to be the electors if the court overturns it to Trump or something like that." Sort of contingency language. And I was wondering if that sort of admission on television could impact any number of other investigations he's in, like Jack Smith, I think, you know, there uh in the DC one or in uh you know, we know Arizona's looking into this, Michigan's still investigating um, fraudulent electors we know uh, now, and we're gonna talk about this in a second, that Nevada is, but what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think every attorney, I would hope, is very aware and cautious about anything they say in the context of when they have clients who are implicated in more than one jurisdiction, and many of these defendants are, you know, and whether they're defendants in one jurisdiction and a witness in the other, any good attorney, and certainly if they're gonna go out on national public, any media, let alone national media, has to have some expectation that every single one of those other jurisdictions and prosecutors are listening to each and every one of those statements. Now, that's the statement of an attorney, right? It's not, it's not the person, it's not the defendant/slash witness themselves saying anything, and it's certainly not them saying anything under oath. But you know, the 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 rub comes in that you know, ordinarily you would assume competent legal advice and representation, but there are <laughs> so many defendants here with so many sketchy folks it, that's not necessarily a given. But I I've got to believe that before making those statements that he was well aware of who the all the various uh audiences might be and uh, you know consequently you know said what he said knowing full well who was going to hear it
0: huh yeah. well well we'll see <laughs> um what's going on in uh, Nevada yeah. i just
2: mentioned <laughs> so let's go down to vegas <laughs> so as it turns out as we've talked about before on the podcast the attorney general in Nevada is quietly investigating republican activists and operatives who falsely pledged the state's six electoral votes to Donald Trump in 2020, despite Joe Biden's victory in the state. According to reporting, investigators have questioned witnesses about the attempts of the so-called alternate electors to present themselves as viable representatives of the state's voters. Investigators have also asked about documents those people prepared as part of the effort. Now, in Nevada, six Republicans, including state GOP chair Michael McDonald, signed fake certificates on December 14th, 2020, falsely declaring themselves to be the state's duly appointed electoral college representatives. And, you know, this is important, too, because we, you know, you compare and contrast the contested states. And in some states, you had, you know, Pennsylvania, people saying, look, is this legal? Can we do it? I don't want to sign something saying that we are bona fide electors. We need to be cautious about, you know, signing a false statement. And at least according to what is being reported out of uh, Nevada, you know these these false electors sign not only you know sort of fake certificates but declaring themselves to be duly appointed so i you know whether that leads to state charges or not it's clear that from this reporting and again my my guess is it's not Nevada state investigators or prosecutors who are leaking this information, it's the people who are being interviewed or their attorneys who are going out and talking to the press and trying to, you know, either get ahead of the narrative or present, you know, if their client's a witness, present the client in the best possible light. So it it clearly, it is, you know, active. This is the sort of thing that typically you see in the course of investigations, as people get interviewed, that you get little dribbles out to the press like this. But, you know, here we are in November of 2023, and it it sure seems like the investigation is still, uh, you know, strong and underway.
0: Yep, and we'll see what happens. Also, eyes on Arizona. They've been investigating for uh, since, I think, January of this year or March. uh, And then I think a special prosecutor was appointed in May. So they could be pretty far along in their investigation as well. Um, all right. Uh, two, la- two final things in-, in Georgia I wanted to bring up. First of all, we now have the first instance of a prosecutor filing a motion to revoke bond in a Trump case. And this is D.A. Willis. And she filed a motion to revoke Harrison Floyd's bond because he has been on Truth Social, I believe, intimidating witnesses. Um, and continuing to intimidate witnesses like Ruby Freeman. He's part of that conspiracy uh, to to uh, intimidate Ruby Freeman and to get her to lie to say that she was part of an effort to count fake ballots. Um, and so I, I think that this is really interesting for, for two reasons. First of all, again, like I said, it's the first instance we have of a prosecutor filing to revoke bond in any of these uh, jurisdictions. But also, Trump's done way worse, but there's no... F- filing, there's no motion for revocation of bond in his case. So I don't know if this is a shot across the bow to Trump, or if she's just saying like, I'm probably not going to go after Trump. And then I, you know, I had a third thought too. Um, she's not going to try to flip Trump ever. I mean, he's he's not going to get a plea deal. Um, n- neither is like Meadows or Eastman um, in these in these cases. And so you know, perhaps trying to flip uh, Harrison Floyd. But, you know, because sitting in a jail cell is a big incentive to to cooperate. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on this.
2: Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, it doesn't, I'm not sure if this is just somebody, you know, because we are at the, you know, the fringes. There are some crazies in here. And we're going to talk about Jeff Clark in a little bit. But when you look at these folks, you know, I don't think it is. Re- Everybody assumes, oh, you're dealing with rational actors. And I don't know in some of these cases that we are. So... You know, this is something and something else that caught my eye that didn't get a lot of play. But Fannie Willis gave an interview where she said, "Look, there's a really decent chance that these trials, specifically including Trump's, are not going to happen until December or later of next year." So, you know, there's some indication that all of this back and forth and the timing it it, that there there's a you know certainly I think a growing understanding or at least, you know, signaling coming out of the DA's office that this may not get to trial prior to the November 2024 elections.
0: Yeah. And in fact, she did file a motion after that interview with the Washington Post and asked for a trial date of August 5th uh, of next year. Um, That could slip. We don't know what the judge will decide. He hasn't ruled on this, uh, her, her motion yet for an August 5th trial date. But also, if the judge revokes Harrison Floyd's bond, he could be in jail until and through that trial, uh, which is a long time. So um, what what do you think about her not doing this for Trump, who has also clearly intimidated witnesses on multiple occasions, potential witnesses?
2: You know, I don't know. I don't know if she is waiting to see if there is something stronger that comes about. I don't know if there's a function of waiting to see what happens in D.C. with Judge Chutkin's uh, gag order, or, uh, up in New York to see what that brings. So I, it, it isn't clear to me, you know, it may well be that she wants to see or have, you know, some pretty strong evidence if she is going to seek to, uh, you know, seek sanctions that, that she wants something stronger than what she's got and or, you know, wait to see how this plays out elsewhere. But it is interesting. It's clear to me that, uh, you know, they are aiming and it's, they, they've got, there are people who, it appears they are very willing to engage in potential plea negotiations with and make deals. And at the same time that there are people they're not. And again, this is speculation on my part, but it sure seems to me like, you know, the top tier folks from Donald Trump to Rudy Giuliani to Mark Meadows and and probably Jeffrey Clark are not folks that are going to get a plea deal out of this unless it's a significant, you know, I agree I committed, you know, a serious felony and I agree to plead to jail time. But you know that's just a guess. But uh, we'll we'll see how that plays out. And we've got some time, right? I mean, now we we know we've got a a number, you know, many months where we might see um, additional pleas coming down the pike.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, it's just it's it feels like different treatment, but there are. I guess, considerations for somebody who's running for president. But then again, we, you know, that's the old argument like, oh, well, then it just run for president and you'll be able to do whatever you want uh, and and seemingly be above the law. Uh, but we'll see how it shakes out. All right. We need to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to, uh, I believe, head to New York. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money
3: you will be vaporized
1: available everywhere starting October 29th or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyers, guns and com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right. Welcome back.
2: We have some more new patrons to thank Denise Jacob, Elect GTRMN Mark Cartwright. I like my dogs a little more than my kids. Jenny, <laughs> Madelon M Raz, Marijo, may you live in interesting times. We'll see about that. Uh, <laughs> Nancy Pinkert and Renee. Uh, thank all of you so much. Um, this is truly you know the, the best part of the show and the most humbling part of the show to see all the folks on the team who you know contribute to make this enterprise go. so you know thank all of you we simply couldn't do this without you. I'm absolutely looking forward to the uh, the MSW event next spring. I think it's going to be amazing and again, that's one of the things a benefit you get as a patron and also something that we simply couldn't do without your support. So thank you thank you thank you and with that, Let's head up to New York. Let's get an update on the $250 million civil fraud trial. Now, Trump's attorneys moved for a mistrial in the ongoing civil fraud case on Wednesday morning, alleging an appearance of bias by the presiding judge and his principal law clerk. The mistrial motion hit the docket on Wednesday as Trump's defense witnesses continue to testify. Before the trial began, Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engoron ordered the dissolution of the New York corporations owned by Trump, his sons Eric Trump and Donald Trump, and two of his business associates. At the time the motion was filed, two gag orders issued by Judge Engoron were active, preventing Donald Trump and his lawyers from attacking his law clerk. Now, that's the, the backdrop, and additionally, you know, uh, the, although Trump... Uh, Lawyer Alina Haba had previously vowed to handle the topic in what she called her term delicately. The motions discussion of the clerk's role in the case is quite blunt. And then the next day on Thursday, Trump circumvented the appellate process by filing a lawsuit against Judge Engoron under a New York state law known as Article 78, which allows for direct appeal of some judicial orders. Justice Friedman of the New York State Intermediate Appeals Court issued an interim stay on both Judge Ingram's gag orders. The Attorney General and Ingram's briefs are due on November 22nd. So as you're listening to this, but, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, that's in the future from when we're taping it. And Trump's reply will be due on November 27th. And then the appellate panel will decide. Now, Trump didn't wait a long time to lash out at Greenfield. Uh, calling her a, quote, politically biased and out-of-control Trump-hating clerk, unquote, in a post (laughs) on Truth Social on Thursday night. (laughs) Then, surprisingly (laughs) enough, the next day, Friday, Judge Ingerin denied Trump's mistrial motion, saying, quote, my rulings are mine and mine alone. There's absolutely no co-judging at play, Ingerin wrote. The judge and his clerk, Allison Greenfield, had been the subject of fierce criticism by Trump and his lawyers. The attorney general had proposed a briefing schedule to address the mistrial motion, but Engoron ruled that was unnecessary, calling the motion itself "quote unquote" <laughs> without merit, and writing "quote subsequent briefing would therefore be futile." Unquote. <laughs> I, and I look, I, Trump's attorneys have—they know this. This is performance art. This is something for you know RBN and Fox News and all the you know the social media ecosystem that they can reprint. All the you know the, the the true thing that he's doing and it it has no chance of success. It didn't have a chance of success. I would be shocked. I mean, who knows what Helena Haba thought, but is his competent attorneys? I think understood full well it had no chance of success. This is out there to provide a talking point and to you know satisfy some rant that Trump probably threw out, demanding that they file this. But it's it's again, it would be funny if it weren't just such an extraordinary. I, I, everybody all of this time all of these judges all of their clerks the lights the water everything at the courthouse is paid for by taxpayers and so this just continual misuse of the judicial system by Trump who by the way his attorneys are being paid by you know the nickel dime mom and pop maga donors who are providing the money for him to file these things it's just dr- grinding down the gears of the judicial system for frivolous bullshit, and
0: yeah, you know, we're all we're all paying for the Trump show. That's what's happening. Yes,
2: exactly. But you know, here I mean, Engren made the right easy call, surprising no one. But you know, <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we'll get. I, I think the appellate panel will decide fairly quickly. I mean, granted, this is the the briefs are due before Thanksgiving. Trump's reply is not due until the following week. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, something – well, who knows. But, I mean, if I had to guess, it wouldn't be un, unexpected if the appellate panel decided something before the end of the week. But well, I – Well, he it.
0: files these losers so he can have a grievance. Sure.
2: And yeah, and Not talk having about a
0: jury trial or, or in D.C. you saying he – you know, de- uh, changing his position and all of a sudden demanding that the trial be televised, knowing that it probably won't be so that he can cry about it not being televised and how unfair it is and the American people deserve the sunlight, et cetera. So – it's it's these are these are pre-grievance motions, is <laughs> what they are. And let's stay in New York. Uh, let's go to the Manhattan DA's office. Alvin Bragg has filed his opposition of Trump's motion to dismiss the hush money, business record falsification felonies. And this story comes to us from Adam Classfeld, who has been doggedly covering uh, these cases for the Messenger. He says Alvin Bragg urged a state judge on Thursday to reject Donald Trump's bid to dismiss his hush money indictment. Quote, defendant is alleged to have lied in New York business records over and over to conceal the truth about his involvement in an illegal conspiracy to undermine the integrity of the 2016 presidential election. That's DA's counsel, Matthew, uh, uh, let's see, is it Colangelo, I believe? Yep. And he wrote that in a 98-page legal brief. He uh, went on to say, a grand jury decided, based on the facts and the law, to charge the defendant with felony crimes for his conduct. The case should now proceed to trial. Defendant repeatedly suggests that because he is a current presidential candidate, the ordinary rules for criminal law and procedure should be applied differently here. And then Colangelo quotes the 11th Circuit's ruling overturning Judge Aileen Cannon's order for a special master (laughs) in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which is a brilliant citation and quotes the 11th Circuit to say, to create a special exception here would defy our nation's foundational principle that our laws apply to all without regard to numbers, wealth, or rank.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, you can never like anything relating to Eileen Cannon is uh is is always a, a bonus win. Don't I, you know? Don't get me started. Yeah, on that. Those I'm is... sure there's there's plenty of outrage on the Jack podcast, but
0: uh... <laughs> those Eleventh Circuit uh, orders and the, rulings the were slap downs. fire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and they're not
2: they're not. Oh, there was an error. This is like you know the 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 announcer on Billy Madison. You know, essentially yeah. having read this brief, <laughs> we are dumber all for dumber having for heard having heard read it. your opinions. You know, May God I have mercy you on no your soul. I award you no points. <laughs> may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I don't see who.
2: Knows? So let's while we're up in New York, let's stay there, but go from state court up to federal court uh, with an update on the Eugene Carroll case in the Southern District. So on November fourteenth. Judge Kaplan, who's the judge presiding over the case, ordered the parties to file a joint pretrial order by November 22nd. They filed it, though, the next day. Uh, In the joint pretrial order, it lays out the history of the case as well as the sexual assault. It states that as a result of the first trial, the jury in this trial will be required to accept as true that Carol was sexually assaulted and that she did not make the story up. The jury will also be required to accept as true that Trump's statements while he was president were defamatory and made with actual malice. It also lays out the stipulated facts, potential witnesses, and that both parties have demanded a jury trial. Carroll expects the trial to last two to four days. Trump expects it to last three to five days. Carol seeks punitive damages and Trump seeks to have the action dismissed in its entirety. And look, my initial thought is, let's take a step back from the ins and outs of this particular trial and just, just focus on that. The jury will be required to accept as true that Carol was sexually assaulted by Trump. And 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 we'll talk a little bit about what a judge found out in Colorado. But just we have a man who was the forty fifth president of the United States, who is the front runner, and in, in most every damn poll that's coming out recently, leading the incumbent president in the presidential race of twenty twenty four, and juries in federal trials potentially are going to be required to accept that the presumptive Republican nominee for the president of the United States sexually assaulted somebody and then defamed her with actual malice. But let's charge ahead. Let's, Mike Johnson, God fearing man, carrying your Bible around. Let's crack that open and find how, you know, that's somewhere in the Sermon of the Mount, I think, that 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 a, you know, a a a sexual abuser, you know, walks w- w- in in the light of god right that, that this is all entirely consistent in macro world where up is down and left is right
0: but- well the chosen ones are flawed pete you know
2: sure 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 but but <laughs> sure. not hunter biden though hunter biden let's let's get some more dick pics and talk about his sin hunter biden who isn't <laughs> running for any office let's get marjorie taylor green to you know blow up some more poster boards of salacious photos
0: yeah, they're just mad that they're not on water slides with hookers and blow. That's uh, and personally, that's what I think is the problem uh, in that particular case. But, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, we have now we now have courts saying Trump uh, conspired more probably than not to defraud the United States and obstruct an official proceeding. He sexually assaulted E.G. Carroll. And engaged in insurrection. These are now things that courts have declared. So yeah, no, presumptive nominee for, for, for 2024. Go GOP. All right. Uh, here, here's some more. We're going to go to the Eastern District of New York now for an update on George Santos's 23 <laughs> felony indictments. Just this past Tuesday, an ex-fundraiser for Santos pled guilty to defrauding campaign donors, uh, adding uh, the pressure, adding to the pressure for the embattled New York Republican. This is Samuel Melee, maybe Mealy. He's 27. He admitted to impersonating a staffer from McCarthy's, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, office, in soliciting campaign contributions and to charging donors' credit cards without their consent. That's called stealing. U.S. <laughs> District Judge Joanna Siebert accepted the plea deal to one count, uh, uh, the plea, I should say, to one count of wire fraud, part of an agreement with federal prosecutors, and set Mealy's sentencing for April 30th of next year. So I want to take a quick break here because oftentimes when we say sentencings for April 30th, sentencing will be in six, eight months, whatever. Uh, there are inevitably people who say, "Why does it take so long to get a sentencing hearing?" And so I just wanted to sort of uh, talk to you about this, Pete, because I know you're pretty, pretty uh, got some. You're an expert in this too. What I've noticed is in between. Um, the the either the guilty plea or the verdict and sentencing, you have to meet with the probation office, and you have to have a, a, several meetings about your financial conditions so that they can figure out what uh, an acceptable fine is, or you know what to you know for um, something that you have to pay restitution for. So there's several of those meetings. Then there are several pleadings and briefings and replies and sir replies about sentencing recommendations, which, you know, go back and forth quite a bit. And then so there's all sorts of things that have to happen. And then, of course, there's, there's the court schedule. You know, our our federal bench um, is really backed up, not just because of COVID, but because it's just it's been inadequate for a long time uh, in a lot of in some specific jurisdictions, others, not so much. Um, but it's it just takes that it's not like anybody is like delaying justice to deny justice in these cases. There's just so much that has to go on between a guilty plea or a conviction and a sentencing hearing. Um, what what else? is? Uh, Do I cover everything? There's got to be other stuff in there.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think people pay attention to it now because we're suddenly, because of Trump, everybody is interested in the timing and how long things take and when things will get done. And, and when folks look at this and, you know, and this sort of strap hangers, the George Santoses and Rudy Giuliani's and others of the world, you know folks see the reality, which is exactly what you've laid out, that, you know, the the criminal justice system does not move quickly at all. And when you look at the civil process or when you look at the bar process, it can take even longer. So there are, you know, I think that was a a very good list in some cases, you know, although there is not an indication um, that he is cooperating, in many cases, if there is, you know, if a defendant wants to plea and then say, hey, look, I want a reduction for cooperation, They'll wait to see the nature of that cooperation before making a recommendation to the judge about, you know, hey, it could be like I cooperated and I gave an interview is very different from I cooperated and went into trial and testified against somebody else in a way that was key to their conviction. So the amount and type of cooperation can vary. Again, not saying that's the case here, but that's just one more additional thing that rolls into all of this. But, you know, again, the next time, you know, when you're looking at other, step outside of all of Trump magaland and pick some other trial and things do, you know, things take time. Um, you know, Charlie McGonigal, a, a former FBI agent who has pled guilty now in both D.C. as well as in SDNY for taking money and, and some acting on behalf of uh, some, some foreign entities, pled guilty you know, several months ago and sentencing, I think, at least in the D.C., uh, New York, I think is December and D.C. is not going to be until early next year. So, again, it, it seems like a long time, but when you look across the board, it, it just takes a long time. That's that's the nature of the process,
0: yeah, and uh, I'm glad you brought that up about the cooperation because um in this story uh it says that there is not any indication that Mealy is cooperating with prosecutors doesn't mean he's not, so we don't know at this time whether they just he they got this plea deal just to get it off the docket and get it done or if they if there's a cooperation um at at play here or not. And uh, maybe that, like you said, if there is, has something to do with the sentencing being so far out. Like, remember uh, Green—what was his name? Matt Gaetz's yeah, uh, Green— Yeah, Green, Green,
2: Greenfield, Greenfield, Green, I think, right?
0: Something. Uh, yeah, the Greenberg. That's Greenberg, it, Joel right, Greenberg. Right, right, yes. Uh, exactly. it, it, putting it off a year, putting it off a year, putting it off a year. Uh, and then, of course, there was never any charges against Matt Gates, but whatever— uh, it, it's, you know, sometimes that's, uh, yeah, also a consideration, like you said, but we, at this point, we don't know if he's cooperating. Uh, as we know in May, Santos pled not guilty to the federal charges for laundering money, uh, to pay for his personal expenses, illegally receiving unemployment benefits and lying to the house of representatives about his assets. Then again, in October, May, June, July, August, September, October, five months later, Uh, He pled not guilty to superseding indictments, accusing him of charging campaign donors credit cards without their consent and reporting a bogus $500,000 campaign loan. And then, you know, back in D.C., we've got this new House Ethics Committee report that has been released on George Santos. And it's a barn burner, dude, along with making a criminal referral to the Department of Justice for things that they say haven't been charged in the 23 felony counts already brought, but they really weren't clear about that. The committee decided not to bring specific charges against Representative Santos in order to avoid substantial interference with the DOJ's ongoing and active prosecution uh, of Representative Santos and others. So they are just they just put all the facts together, sent them over to the DOJ. We could see additional superseding indictments. I'm not sure. I don't know if the DOJ missed anything that the committee got or, you know, vice versa. But um, we'll see. We'll see what ends up coming out of that. But Representative Guest has filed now a resolution to expel Santos. He did that last week, and a vote I believe is expected after the Thanksgiving holiday. Now, before there were a lot of people saying he hadn't gone through his due process and we shouldn't expel him, including Jamie Raskin and even Lawrence Tribe was like, "My student is now the teacher. He changed my mind on this. He he deserves due process before we expel a member of Congress. We do it so rarely." Uh, but now it seems like a lot of people who weren't so keen on expelling him before aren't uh, shying away from it now. Uh, I don't know if he will be expelled. He requires a two-thirds vote. But uh, we'll we'll know after the holidays. Do you think he could be expelled? I think it might be.
2: I, look, it's going to be close. I mean, earlier I would have said absolutely not. But, I mean, the fact that you have now... Not only, your, but the biggest thing was the detail in the report, and you know, going to say that he's the, the that money illicit money that he was spending report. it on yeah. Botox and OnlyFans, and at some point again, godly Mike Johnson, man of the Lord, my man of the book. You know, again, I'm sure somewhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's something where it talks about you know ill-gotten gains uh going to an only fans uh, account i'm sure that the, the the lord preached that somewhere i'm sure that's fine i'm sure that's fine botox but, is probably uh, botox, seven, right right yes sin. and i don't mean to be sacrilegious i you know i this is not this is not anything against christianity this is an entire rant about the rank hypocrisy of people yep. who profess to be christians whose actions belie the even most basic of christian virtue but Mike Johnson and the reason I bring it up is still, you know, kind of on the fence is a is the the best way to view it. But I mean, I think he has said, look, we have a razor thin majority as it is. If we lose a vote, uh, you know, it, it's not it's not that Santos isn't voting. It's like you know he's gone entirely, and depending on the timing of a a new election and getting a replacement in there, it's it's hard enough to govern as it is. And so the question is is of course to get to that two thirds majority do you have sufficient republican uh defectors who will go and vote to expel them and they presumably are going if they exist are going to come from districts where their constituents in fact are <laughs> trying to lead a good moral life and look at somebody who is a an alleged rank swindler using that money for you know porn and botox and everything else uh, you know that's sort of hard to you know, face a challenger saying, hey, why would you support this guy? You right. know, was it not – so is that sufficient to get to, you know, whatever the numbers are for two-thirds? I don't know. But the answer is not zero, right? It isn't no. necessarily we'll see, dead yeah. on arrival.
0: Well, no. And, I mean, there were 33 Democrats who voted against his expulsion the first time because he didn't get due process. And I don't know how what they're thinking now. So we will find out. Um Presumably after the Thanksgiving break. All right. We have to take another quick uh, commercial break, but um, we will be right back and we're going to discuss what happened in Colorado in the case um, of trying to keep Donald Trump off of the ballot pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So stick around. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money
3: you will be
1: vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I have more patrons to thank today. We have Sometimes, Stephanie Tishiner, Susan Churchill, Ben Lowry, Dave and Lori, Deborah Kaufman, Jennifer Mador, Therese Fantasia, beautiful name, and Terry Cummings. Thank you so, so, so much for being patrons. We appreciate you. Uh, before we head to D.C. to round out the day, let's make a pit stop in Colorado. This week, we got a ruling in the lawsuit brought by Republican voters in the state to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in 2024 pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And despite how the media first ran with the reporting, and also despite my first reading of it cuz I like to scroll to the end and read the final <laughs> you know the final conclusion um I, and even though the judge uh ruled that she couldn't keep Donald Trump off the ballot in 2024 her ruling is a win if you're actually for keeping Trump off the ballot it tees up a beautiful appeal and here's why the judge essentially made two findings a factual finding and a legal finding And from Section 5, Paragraph 288, this is the factual finding in the application of Brandenburg. The court concludes, based on its findings of fact and the applicable law detailed above, that Trump incited an insurrection on January 6th and therefore engaged in insurrection within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. First, the court concludes that Trump acted with a specific intent to disrupt the Electoral College certification of President Biden's electoral victory through unlawful means, specifically by using unlawful force and violence. Next, the court concludes that the language Trump employed was likely to produce such lawlessness. He did engage in insurrection through incitement, and it was not protected by the First Amendment. And then, paragraph 298, the judge concludes. Consequently, the court finds. The petitioners have established that Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6, 2021 through incitement and that the First Amendment does not protect Trump's speech.
2: So can I just interrupt here to make sure I'm tracking on this? So what we're hearing from this judge is the the person who a different court established was a sexual predator and sexually assaulted somebody. That that judicial process in the United States, it's the same person that now that judicial process is determined, uh, engaged in an insurrection on January 6th in incitement. That's the same person, right, that we're talking about here? Same dude. Okay, got it, got it. And then the same one that presumably is going to be the Republican candidate for president next year.
0: That's the one. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yep. Sorry, sorry. Mm-hmm. Just was couldn't nope, quite wrap crazy. my mind
2: around that for a little bit. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All right, so that's the factional finding. Then there's the legal finding, and this is where it gets interesting, whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to Trump. And they get in the weeds here over the wording of Section 3 and the oath of the office of the president. Quote, for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to apply to Trump, this court must find both that the presidency is an office under the United States and that Trump took an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States. It continues, Section 3 explicitly lists all federal elected positions except the president and the vice president. Under traditional rules of statutory construction, when a list includes specific positions but then fails to include others, courts assume the exclusion was intentional. The ruling continues, next, the court addresses whether Trump previously took an oath As a member of Congress, as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state. The court agrees with interveners that the drafters of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment did not intend to include the president as a, quote, officer of the United States, unquote. The the ruling continues, quote, while the court agrees that there are persuasive arguments on both sides— the court holds that the absence of the president from the list of positions to which the amendment applies, combined with the fact that Section Three specifies that the disqualifying oath is one to support the Constitution, whereas the presidential oath is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, I, you know, and I'm curious to hear what you think. I mean, you know, there's there's a reason why. Well, first, tell me what you think about it, and then we can we can get a discussion
0: about it. Well, I think it's, I think her ruling is correct, but wrong. Let me, (laughs) let me see if I can explain this. Because the words here, the court agrees there's persuasive arguments on both sides. And in a tie, the tie goes to the interveners, right? Um, She's saying, "I I can't establish this, but there's sort of an implied second part of that. Perhaps another court would like to take a swing at this and not this particular court. Um, so, you know, I, I disagree. I, I think it's obvious that the President is an officer of the United States. In fact, President Trump argued in New York in the e. Jean Carroll case, that the President is an officer of the United States, as it pertains to the Westfall Act, so that he could get represented by the DOJ and have the case dismissed. So Trump has argued, so he's using this office of the United States as a sword and a shield. For different purposes. Now, I spoke to Mario Nicholas. He is counsel for the plaintiffs in this case. You can hear that interview on this past Monday's episode of the Daily Beans, and he pointed that out to me. He said, "You know, Trump's actually argued he's uh, he's an officer for the Westfall." I'm like, "That's right. That's when he was trying to get DOJ to 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 certify him, is what they call it, in the Eugene Carroll case, because you know, once the DOJ represents you, you, you it's pretty much over." So. I think that this tees it up really nicely for an appeal. I think this is going to be the case that could get to the Supreme Court to have them decide this. And, uh, you know, uh, as I said, I spoke to the to, to Mario, the counsel for the plaintiffs, and he's very thrilled with this here. He's like, we won, we won this, we won that, we won this, we won that. Up oh, that one little last piece. She didn't put the cherry on top of the sundae. But I, he says, the fact that She made the factual finding that he engaged in insurrection is the most important part because higher courts, appellate courts, don't usually overturn findings of fact in lower courts. They do all the time overturn legal findings, the interpretation of the law in lower courts. And Mario said to me, I was going to have to argue this to the appellate court or to the Supreme Court anyhow that he's an officer of the United States. It was a matter of law because each court can decide its own matter of law. And so he's like, but now I don't have to establish that he engaged in an insurrection. Uh, I can make those same arguments and it's going to be harder for an appellate court to overturn or, a Supreme, or the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court of Colorado, which is where it's going next, by the way. He, he told me he was going to be filing his uh, appeal on Monday. It hasn't hit the docket yet. Um, as uh, uh, you know, at the time of this recording, but it'll be out there. So you keep an eye on uh, on social media, and I'll, I'll go over it. But that those are my thoughts.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, look, there's no question in my mind. This is this is obviously going to the Supreme Court in Colorado. There's some question, you know, did the judge punt this, saying, "Well, you know, I'm not qualified to to determine this. A higher court can do it." You know, did they by taking the conservative? Did they do anybody any favors one way or the other by the position that they took? I don't know. What's going to be very interesting is I think you know that it, it this is undoubtedly going to go to the Supreme Court, and you know what Mario said about he's going to be arguing in both. I mean, there's no question in my mind he's going to have to argue that in in Colorado, and then he's going to find himself here in Washington D.C. But what is going to be interesting is you know this is just Colorado, and if it gets to the Supreme Court, if you get multiple states you know, what are their positions? Do you have a unanimous group of states who have judgments finding that Trump, you know, judicial findings that Trump engaged in an insurrection, or do you have mixed results? And does that matter? You know, how does that influence the court's analysis, if it's a unanimous perspective coming out of the states or not? Traditionally, the Supreme Court, again, you know, we've talked about it, has been very deferential to the you know the, the the state's ability to judge and rule particularly on electoral matters what they're going to do i mean all of the arguments about redistricting and uh, you know the more county decision in in North Carolina or the, i don't know that there's a decision out yet but the 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 litigation has consistently been that the role of you know elections the states have a presumptive strong strong yeah. interest in controlling those except Probably the conservative majority is going to decide this one thing with this particular candidate, again, the man who was found by our judicial system to be both a sexual predator as well as an insurrectionist, right? Let's keep that in mind. This guy gets the benefit of the doubt. This guy, let's, let's let him run. And in fact, you know, the the Constitution and the 14th Amendment is a suicide pact. So let's just fuck democracy and flush it down the toilet because we are going to get wrapped around the axle on the particular wording of what represents an an officer of the United States. And, you know, we have to, we have to, no matter what, abide by the fact that they did not include the president and a vice president. And statutory construction is the end all be all of the democracy of the United States of America.
0: What was interesting that Mario said to me is he's like I'm actually glad that it came this way and posits that perhaps the judge knew this too that if there wasn't an appealable decision um, for these guys and let's like let's say she ruled that he couldn't be on the ballot there might not have been an appeal because you know why kind of in Trump mind and in Tr- in Trump head why bother now I have a grievance and I wasn't going to win Colorado anyway so <laughs> you know the, he he he. Th- He's also thinking along those lines, too, which I think is interesting. But we will follow this case for you as it uh, as it goes up and um, keep you posted. All right. uh, We have to take another quick break, but we will be right back. Stick around.
1: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. Get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. It's time to thank our Hall of Famers.
2: Uh, you are the folks who go above and beyond in your support, the, the all-stars of the team that makes all of this go, and can't thank you enough, and so without further ado, huge thanks to Mr. Halfspeed, Patty B, BackdropBooks.com, I'm a Trash Bag from Arizona, Kirkland J. Bateman, another Minneapolitan, and Sloan Russell. Thank you all so, so very much for your support and yes. for, for everything Thank you do. You. Thank you. Thank you. And so with that, let's finish the show Here is in Washington, D.C., where I am. But first, before we do that, let's take a small detour to Delaware, where Hunter Biden has filed his motion for subpoenas pursuant to Rule 17. This motion outlines who Hunter Biden wants to subpoena in the gun charge case brought by David Weiss. Now, Rule 17 is the federal rule of criminal procedures that outlines how subpoenas work and in litigation that you can, you know, what you're allowed to do and not do what the opposing side can do to suppress those subpoenas. But essentially, it lays out in this case, and we'll we'll talk about it in a second, what a defendant in this case can ask for information-wise, and it can give us a little bit of a clue on what Hunter Biden and his counsel are thinking. And this is from uh, the motion, quote, Robert Hunter Biden, through his counsel, respectfully moves this court to enter an order directing that subpoenas duces takeum be issued to the following individuals. Donald John Trump, Mr. Trump, William P. Barr, Mr. Barr, Richard Donahue, Mr. Donahue, and Jeffrey A. Rosen, or Mr. Rosen, pursuant to Rule 17C of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, and that each subpoena recipient be required to provide any responsive documents and materials by December 1, 2023, to allow Mr. Biden sufficient time to review the material in advance of any necessary pretrial motion, evidentiary hearing, and or trial. Now, the reasoning behind these subpoenas makes it clear that Hunter Biden's lawyers plan to file a pretrial motion to dismiss the case for selective or vindictive prosecution. Here are some excerpts from it. It has been reported and revealed in the now public IRS investigative files concerning this case released by the House Ways and Means Committee that separately, the Department of Justice under then Attorney General Barr opened a dedicated channel at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Pittsburgh to receive information about Mr. Biden, coming from then-President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and his associates. That effort to review and vet any material was coordinated by then-U.S. Attorneys Richard Donahue in EDNY and Scott Brady in Pittsburgh of the Western District of Pennsylvania. When Mr. Donahue was elevated to serve as Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General at DOJ in July 2020, IRS files revealed that he further coordinated with the Pittsburgh office and with the prosecution team in Delaware, including issuing certain guidance regarding overt steps in the investigation. As Deputy Attorney General, Mr. Rosen interacted with teams investigating Mr. Biden in both Pittsburgh and Delaware. Testimony and investigative files provided by IRS agent Gary Shapley also reveal that around the 2020 election, all aspects of the investigation, quote, needed to be vetted with U.S. Attorney Weiss and Deputy Attorney General Donahue which was misspelled, Donahue. (laughs) Public reporting reveals certain instances that appear to suggest incessant, improper, and partisan pressure applied by then-President Trump to Rosen, Donahue, and Barr in relation to an investigation of Mr. Biden. These confirmations of communications give more than a mere appearance that President Trump improperly and unrelentingly pressured DOJ to pursue an investigation and prosecution of Mr. Biden. And then finally, uh, consequently, Mr. Biden now moves this court to issue four subpoenas, directing uh, Trump, Barr, Donahue and Rosen to produce this information. Uh, Look, I think there is a decent I think there the the question is whether or not the court's going to do it. There is a, a pretty short timetable. DOJ has been very. You know the, the the standard they get if you're going to co- the higher ranking of the individual that you want to subpoena and there's a difference between subpoenaing records from somebody versus compelling their testimony or their, uh, you know their 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 appearance. I the higher it gets, the harder it is to do. But I certainly think there's a strong argument for Donahue and yeah. Rosen. Barr yeah. gets a little tougher. Trump even tougher. But there are clear shenanigans here, and. You know, I, I think they're also seizing on the fact that you know there there was an IG report highly critical of Scott Brady and his conduct in the U.S. Attorney's okay. office in the Western District of Pennsylvania. There've been all kinds of questions raised about Shapley and some of the IRS investigators and about whether or not they were uh, fully compliant with their discovery obligations. And it's clear they're going to try and you know exploit all all the stuff that's coming out about you know that we talked about during the bonus episode about these knuckleheads. That have been now charged with you know in Ukraine for being agents of the government of Russia, who are Rudy's primary interlocutors, getting dirt yeah. about Hunter Biden. There, there's clearly a lot of stuff here that I, I think you know, there's a lot that a defense team can play with, and they're they're clearly doing that.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a good chance. Um, I think he could easily, not easily, but I think he could get Donahue and Rosen. Um, and I think it would be more difficult to get Barr and Trump. But I mean, if he's trying to file a pretrial motion to dismiss on, you know, uh, vindictive or selective prosecution, he he may be able to get a Trump or Barr deposition or documents if he can prove that he can't get that information from Donahue and Rosen. Um, and I know that you know a little bit about this personally yourself. Um, and so we'll end up, we'll see what ends up happening here. But I think he's got a better chance than not, at least to get two of these guys, but we'll see. And I'm excited to get the motion to dismiss because I think we'll finally get a pretty substantial look at some of the prosecutorial misconduct inside Trump's Department of Justice outside of a, an IG report or, the, or, the, or you know journalism, journalists reporting this stuff. Um, there's still no tax charges, by the way, filed in any jurisdiction. Uh, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll keep an eye on it for you. All right. Last stop in D.C., Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss. And defendant Rudy Giuliani have filed their joint pretrial submission to Judge Beryl Howell in the D.C. District Court. This is just like the E. Jean Carroll and Trump joint pretrial order we went over earlier. This lays out the evidence, substantiated facts, damages sought, and the like. But unlike the E. Jean Carroll joint submission, this one asked for a dollar amount. You and I speculated a bit. I said tens of millions of dollars. Um, but for punitive damages alone, Ruby Freeman and Chez Moss are seeking 15 to $43 million. Mm. Um, or excuse me, not punitive damages. That's compensatory damages. They can also add punitive damages, nominal damages, damages, and attorneys' fees. He already owes one hundred forty thousand in attorneys' fees, and they're also asking for IIED emotional distress damages, right? And that's aside from um, all of the other fifteen to forty-three million. It could it could end up being more. Now there's more info in here besides that. The estimated trial length is four days. Moss and Freeman estimate two to three days. And uh, when they ask Rudy for his input, because this is a joint filing, it says defendant doesn't expect to present a separate case in chief and agrees with the plaintiff's estimate of time. OK, he probably can't because he doesn't have any discovery that he you know, he's been sanctioned. So <laughs> 10 ways to Sunday, he doesn't have any defenses or, or evidence. Now, first is the statement of the plaintiff's. Uh, Then the statement of defense. Now the plaintiff's statement. The court found in its August 30th, 2023 order that defendant Giuliani made false and defamatory statements about plaintiffs, without privilege to third parties, and with actual malice, and which caused plaintiffs harm, and which constitute defamation per se in that they damaged them in their trade, office, or profession by claiming that they participated in criminal activity. The only unresolved issue for the trial is damages. Now. As to plaintiff's claim for IIED, that's the emotional distress damages, plaintiff's pleaded and the court found. One, conduct was extreme and outrageous. Two, intentionally. Three, caused plaintiff's severe emotional distress. The only unresolved issue, the amount of damages. As to plaintiff's claim for civil conspiracy, plaintiff's pleaded and the court found. In August 30th, 2023, defendant Giuliani, one, entered into an agreement with two other people. At least two, to defame and elicit emotional distress on plaintiffs, who, three, suffered injury as a result. The only unresolved issue is the damages. And then there's the statement of the defendant. The court has stricken Giuliani's affirmative defenses in the court's sanctions orders. However, Giuliani will argue that plaintiffs cannot show more than a de minimis or an insignificant relationship between their alleged harm and Giuliani's conduct. And he disputes the weight of the evidence As advanced by the plaintiffs. But yeah, the court has stricken Giuliani's affirmative defenses in the court's sanctions orders. They have found all of those things that I listed to be true. And the only shit left to determine is damages in all three of those cases. So it's not going to go well for him.
2: Yeah, look, and it's a hell of a lot more than, you know, the two turntables and a microphone that he listed as his, his assets. And I'm sure right now Rudy's running around the tri-state area up in, uh, you know, New York and New Jersey and uh, Connecticut going to storage lockers and stashing little bundles of money here and there to, to hide his assets from any sort of recovery. But I once they get this done, once there's an order, that's where it's going to be really interesting to me to be able because, again, Shea and Ruby Freeman will have the ability to go out and start attaching to those assets and the search for you know the Rudy financial empire I'm not sure that it is I you know much like Trump's I suspect is very uh heavy on top you know all hat and no cattle as they say down in Texas but you know what he does have uh you know whether it's a condo up in Manhattan or any other sort of residence it will be interesting to me to see how it's going to be I would imagine quite a bit. I don't know that we're talking yeah. Alex Jones, Sandy Hook levels of no, uh, damages, but maybe not. A, a lot we'll more than Rudy can just sit down and, you know, sell some stock and pay off. So
0: yeah, and I, I just wanted to point out before you get to the the final story here, um, one of the items in the evidence list is a ginger mint. Mm. Yeah. So that they can show that to the court. Right. No, it's <laughs> a, a, a vial of it's a crack. It's a vial of crack, right? Or, yeah. no, well, well, he said it was a, a, thumb, drive, a thumb drive, like it okay. was like like, it was like crack. a
2: right, mm-hmm. right? Because yes, exactly.
0: Because I'm addicted to my thumb drives.
2: Yeah, right. And throw in the you know the the the, the racial dog whistles in absolutely in his
0: other comments. the racial dog whistle. God, un- so gross. B- unbelievable.
2: All right, so last story. Let's let's stay here in Washington D.C. <laughs> Jeffrey Clark, the driveway underwear man has submitted his witness list in his disbarment proceedings in Washington, D.C. He provided 42, count them, 42 potential witnesses. Now, here are some of the standouts on those 42. John Ratcliffe, Mark Meadows, Congressman Matt Gates, presumably complained about DOJ's response to election fraud, Ed Meese, Ed Meese from like Ed Meese from 40 <laughs> years ago. Ed Meese. Ed Meese. Who amicus wrote brief guy. Some, some dumbass uh, amicus brief who said that Clark could do anything that a president could tell him to do. So let's, let's wheel in Ed to his D.C. bar proceedings. <laughs> Doug Mastriano <laughs> from Pennsylvania. Very credible witness who presumably is going to argue that there was, in fact, election fraud because nothing screams command of the facts like Doug Mastriano. And then finally, Representative Scott Perry. Now, most of the rest are either what Clark calls fact witnesses that will testify about election fraud or what Clark says or what he terms, quote unquote, expert witnesses that will testify about election fraud and cybersecurity. So all these lawsuits <sighs> that Trump lost across the United States saying there was not, in fact, election fraud, good old Jeff Clark is going to roll into DC bar proceedings saying, oh,
3: no, 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 no.
2: Here are 42 witnesses that are going to tell you, in fact election fraud did occur and i just had
0: Meese on a dolly or like weekend at bernie's like
2: (laughs) and i you know have these folks you know john ratcliffe was the former director of national intelligence congressman before that but but clark wants him because he was the dni mark meadows of course trump's chief of staff whether or not what what is interesting to me is what ability these proposed witnesses have to say oh (laughs) no thank you I don't care to testify or here I'll submit an affidavit instead because I think certainly when you talk about Mark, Mark Meadows doesn't want to have to be on the stand providing testimony about what did no. or didn't
0: happen. No. Uh, so- and and I don't know if bar proceedings have motions in limine, but I I bet he's not going to be able to argue that the election was stolen. I mean, that's going to probably be something that would eliminate 98% of these witnesses already. So, who knows? Uh but uh, I doubt he's going to get uh any of these guys. They couldn't even he couldn't even get any of them to sign a letter saying he was their lawyer. Oh wait, no, that was Eastman. That was Eastman. Um. Yeah. Meadows like. Yeah. Absolutely. I will put in jeopardy my uh entire career as a free man and come and testify in your disbarment. Yeah. That'd be great. Cool. Sign me up. then. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's no
2: it's, it's again you know something. But Donald Trump is this is a Tom Nichols' phrase. Donald Trump is the patron saint of the third line of. The government. I mean, these these aren't the first string. They're they're not the starters. They're not the second stringers. These are like the third stringers or worse. They are just people who you look at and you say, Why how I I can understand how you burrowed into the government somewhere functioning as a not particularly competent level functionary and suddenly you were thrust upon the national stage as the potential attorney general for Donald Trump in the middle of the, you know, (laughs) right before the insurrection. And now you're you're in here trying to save your ass, in and, and hopefully you know we'll see what DC does. But I just I don't have a lot of hope for Jeff Clark's presentation. But we'll see, we'll see what he does. Um, and and it, you know, as we unfold. know,
0: watching this go with, through through this with Rudy and Clark, these these disbarment proceedings take forever. So. Something else that should be looked at and fixed, uh, in my opinion, since we're going to be having a lot of election litigation in the the coming decades, uh, because that is now the Republican way. All right. Thank you again so much, everybody, for listening. Thank you to our patrons. Uh, Keep an eye on your inbox. We're going to send out whenever our next uh, happy hour is, our next Zoom happy hour. Uh, Again, if you want to sign up, that's patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod that's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here for the week, my friend? Mm-hmm. Uh, except other uh, other than just to everyone have a really incredible holiday with your family or friends or however you celebrate it.
2: Yes, absolutely. Take a step away from all of this crap. Give thanks because there is still a huge amount that is good with life, with our country, with your family. If you have MAGA extended family, don't, uh, you know focus on the good things of life and uh, yeah although take
0: about. their phones and subscribe to clean up on Isle 45 <laughs> for them
2: yeah so anyway but no truly truly happy Thanksgiving to each and everybody and uh, we'll see you next week
0: all right I've been Allison Gill
2: and I'm Pete Struck.
0: clean up on Isle 45 is written researched and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr Cleanup Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.